All right, we're reading from Genesis chapter 38 today. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adalom named Hirah. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kizib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hirah the Adullamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to share his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at NAM? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and he was named Zerah. Melinda, we are really looking forward <laughs> to how you unpack this passage for us. 
Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Let's pray. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> King Jesus, we thank you for the story of you and your people in the Bible. We thank you that it's really honest. Uh, it's been really helpful to unpack some of the, the brutal honesty about some of our heroes of faith, but also some of the lesser known people. Jesus, we want to open our ears and our heart, our lives to you uh, as ourselves, but as a community, to hear by your Holy Spirit what you might have us learn about who you are and who we are as your people. We thank you for your scriptures. We thank you too for Melinda. We thank you for her preparation, her wisdom, her understanding. And we pray that you might give her words to say that speak not just the story, but into our lives today. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Appreciate the prayer. <laughs> what do you do with a story like that? Uh, I think most of Christians throughout history, you skip it. You just go on to the next chapter and pretend it's not there. Um, because these are messy and complicated and uncomfortable. Uh, they are not easy to read and they're not easy to sit in and they're not easy to see how they connect to our lives. Um, in particular, we've been looking through Genesis 12 to 50, these, these chapters of these really early uh, followers of the God who has revealed himself to us. And these chapters, Genesis 12 to 50, have often been called the patriarchal narratives. Um, and I um, have had the opportunity over the last few years to teach Old Testament. And uh, in my class, I continue to call them the patriarchal narratives and, and um, our head of school at table actually said to me, you know, why don't you change the name? That's a bit you know, offensive these days. I call them the ancestral na- narratives. So it's a little bit more PC. And I said, well, no, they are patriarchal narratives. We've got to own up to the fact that these stories were written in a time and a place that is not ours. Uh, and they do make us uncomfortable and we might even find them offensive because, for starters, they are the stories of men. The women in these stories only appear in terms of their relationship with the men, uh, and usually their stories are uncomfortable and odd. The outsiders in these stories, the people from other cultures and other races, only appear in connection with those who are insiders, and their stories are often odd and uncomfortable. The children in these stories tend not to appear at all. This is written into a world which saw things differently than how we see them, and we need to wrestle with that reality. The culture the Bible was written into was an ancient culture that was patriarchal, and women were viewed only through the lens of the men that they belonged to, and their perspectives and their voices are rarely heard. And so when we came to prepare this series, we could have just done a four-week series, which I've seen done multiple times over the years in churches, and looked at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph, because they're the four big stories of this book. But there are other stories. And so we wanted to challenge ourselves. I thought it was a good idea at the time. I'm not so sure right now. But we wanted to challenge ourselves. Uh, And so if you were here a few weeks ago when Elliot looked at the story of Hagar, um, it was such a powerful message as we looked at this woman who was a woman and an outsider and a foreigner, unknown and unseen, unrespected, disrespected, but, you know, go with the unseen there, by everyone in her world, except for the God who saw her and who actually spoke into her life. So it's challenging to read these stories, and I certainly find it challenging as a woman in particular to read these stories and to feel for these women women in these uh, chapters whose voices are not heard or whose stories are told in really complicated, messy, sad, violent and tragic ways. Um, We did skip over Genesis 34, if you want to go back and look at the story of the rape of Dina and just, what do you do? 
with these tragic, awful stories. What do I do with this as someone who believes that this book is the Word of God and that it has something to teach us, to encourage us with, to challenge us with, to speak into our lives with? I think if you've been taught that the Bible works, particularly the Old Testament, as a bunch of simple morality tales, then you're going to be in trouble with a story like this because there are no heroes in this story. There is no one to point at and say, be like that. There are plenty of people to point at and go, don't be like that. But even then, it's complicated. It's not quite clear always what is right and what is wrong. The Bible doesn't work that way. The Bible works in a much more difficult way, in a way that's going to cause us to wrestle and challenge us, but I believe in a much more profound way. It would be easy to have a Bible that was full of storybook morality tales that you could just check off, yes, done that, didn't do that, and go about your merry way, as if the life of faith was a life of ticking boxes of what you do and don't do. But the life of faith, as Aaron talked about last week, is a life of relationship with a God who calls us to wrestle in the reality, the groundedness, the mess and the complications of real life. So as I come to this kind of story, I want to say a few things before we get to Tamar herself. Firstly, for me, it's really important we need to get about the nature of the Bible itself, how God has chosen to speak to us. This is not a book that was just dropped from heaven, magically written by God and inscribed on some golden tablets for all time speaking just eternal and ethereal truths. It is a very human book. It is a book through which God speaks, absolutely. It is the inspired word of God, but God has chosen to speak through the words of real people, in real situations, in real mistakes, in real cultures and contexts, which are messy and wrong in a lot of the time. It is written to real people in real time, and that means that reading the Bible is actually a much harder task than we might sometimes think. It is a book that needs to be wrestled with and questioned, and interpreted, and talked about. I actually believe the Bible was never meant to be read individually. It was always meant to be read in community. It is a community book. I actually had the privilege this week um, of reading the Bible and starting to read the Bible, something um, we encourage people to do here, read the Bible one-on-one with someone else, and reading the Bible with someone here, but I'm also um, mentoring a young Aboriginal girl and reading the Bible with her. And we read some stories, and I had never noticed before how many people are in the stories because I would just, we're actually reading the story of Mary and Elizabeth, Luke chapter one, and um, we just focus on the main characters. But the number of times it talks about the family and the cousins and the relatives and the neighbours and the kin. Uh, And she was talking about, you know, her perspective that, you know, she finds it difficult that white Australians talk about extended family and they mean their cousins. She's like, you know, extended family is the people that I've never met before that are coming and we're going to welcome them into my home. But a perspective on community and family that I'm really challenged by, and I've grown up in a culture that teaches me to read the Bible very individualistically and look at what God has to say to me. It's a book that was designed to be read in community. Don't think that I'm going to give you all the answers about this chapter today. We need to sit in this together and question it and wrestle with it and talk about it and hear each other's perspectives and insights to figure out together what God is saying to us through it. So the nature of the Bible is something we need to take seriously, but the really profound thing about the nature of the Bible, I believe, is what it tells us about the nature of God, the kind of God, our God, 
has revealed himself to us to be. If God was a God who just dropped this magical book from heaven that told us once and for all what we should do outside of culture, outside of language, outside of the messiness and reality of life, then how could we know him? We would have to figure out how to understand him. It would be putting the onus on us to get to know God. Think about the simple fact that this book that we are reading this morning was not written in English because these people did not speak English. It was a language that they had never heard of yet. It was written to them in their language so that they could understand. I don't understand that language. I might have to do some work or rely on the work of others to interpret and understand it. But a God who chooses to speak to people then in their language is a God who chooses to speak to me today in my language. Some friends of mine are missionaries working with a tribal group uh, in Africa, the Yao. And the Yao had been taught for about 200 years that they had to learn Arabic in order to pray and worship God. And these Christian missionaries came along and said, we actually want to write down, their language was not a written language, it was a spoken language. And so we want to write down your language and we want to translate the Bible into your language. And we want to invite you to hear the word of God and speak to him and pray to God in your language. And it blew their minds. And I heard that story and I thought, I've never once questioned in my life whether God understood English or not. (laughs) Of course he does. But that's the kind of God God is, a God who speaks in your language. More than that, a God who speaks in your cultural context, in your day, in your time, in your situation. And that God had to speak to these people within their context, in their language, but also within their cultural frameworks, within their understanding of the world, limited as it was, dark as it was, as we might look back and say, they just didn't understand so many things. But God could only speak to them in a way that made sense to them because that is the kind of God God is. He is a God who wants to make himself known. He doesn't want us to have to reach up to him, but who wants to come down and make himself known to us. So again, I think it makes it hard to work to read the Bible, but it means that this God is the same God to me who makes himself known in the realities, in the context, and in the mess of my life too. The third thing I say is we actually need to appreciate the glimpses we do get in the Bible of things that might seem to us (laughs) to be kind of not enough, but within that culture are actually unbelievable, unusual, and unlikely. The fact that we would even get the story of an Egyptian woman and a Canaanite woman in a patriarchal Israelite text is mind-blowing, that these stories have been preserved for us to read, that these glimpses into these lives of people who had no status, no power, no position, no recognition, and yet their voices, in some small ways, have been preserved for us. We could have a book that had no women's stories, that had no outsiders' stories, but we don't. The fact that these stories exist, I think, provide us with a hint that God is doing something new. He makes himself known in the context that the people are in, but he is pushing them forward. God is always pushing people forwards, sowing seeds, moving them on. And so we need to pay attention and listen to the voices of the marginalised that are actually given some attention, despite a cultural framework in which they were ignored. And finally, I think we need to understand that the scriptures with this forward movement are always pointing us to say this is not how it should be. There is something more. 
I often say to my students that you should read the whole Testament, the whole of the Old Testament, as if it has a big arrow across it pointing forward, because it is an unfinished book. It is a book that time after time after time says, this cannot be all there is. There must be something more. There must be a new way. We cannot keep going around in the same circles. It points us forward to one who is promised and expected right from the very beginning of Genesis, throughout every page of the Old Testament, who will come one day and show a new way and set us on the path of setting all things right. And we don't live on that side of the story. We now live in a day when Jesus has come. A Jesus who walked into the mess of the world, who lifted up the voiceless and the marginalised, who invited them to sit at his table and eat with him when they had been rejected and excluded in their cultural context. A God who has poured out his spirit at Pentecost on his sons and his daughters, on old and on young, on people from every language and tribe and culture, and said, you are all a part of what I am doing. A church which is inclusive, where everybody has a part to play and a gift to bring. That is the trajectory, if you like, the arrow pointing forwards through the whole Bible, that we need to recognise where this story sits in Genesis is just the beginning of God sowing seeds, of leading us towards a day when Jesus will come and overturn and radically include and remove the barriers. So, it's a lot of introduction. We better have a quick look at Tamar's story. You notice how I've left myself little time for Tamar, so I don't have to look at all the gory details. Uh, Tamar's story is a story that is just so foreign to us in so many ways. There's some really important background context that we just don't have because we don't live in the world in which she lived. So we need to understand some things like Leverite marriage laws. How exciting a topic is that? But in the Old Testament and in the ancient cultures into which this was written, this idea that actually if a man died, his wife would be given to his brother. Seems really odd to us. Uh, and so that the family line could be continued. We're talking a world before social security. <laughs> We're talking a world before all the kind of the, the things that make our world you know, just the way it is. And we are talking a world in which women who did not belong to a man, who were not married or in their father's house, essentially were left to die. They had no means of supporting themselves and they had no means of moving forward in life unless they could have a child and particularly a son. So we need to understand the social realities for a woman like Tamar and the situation that she finds herself in. We need to understand that we're living in a time when women were blamed for infertility even though the text actually makes clear to us what's going on. As I said, when they were defined by their relationships by men, uh, we need to have a little bit of understanding of how prostitution works in ancient culture, just fun, but the text is quite clear here um, about who thinks what and what is going on here. Um, and in, I'm doing some reading around this, but in, in the Israelite culture and in the rest of the Bible, uh, and certainly in the other cultures around them the day, prostitutes didn't actually wear veils. Right? We read the story and we're like, oh, she put on a veil, she must be a prostitute. Now, that's what Judah thought. But actually, veils were worn by higher-class women, by married women, by women of social standing. Lower-class women, wealth, they weren't worthy of that. And so maybe some of the things that we think we understand about the story or think we're being told need to be flipped on their heads once we understand what's going on. And I said, she's not just a woman, Tamar, but she is an outsider. She is a Canaanite woman. She is a foreigner. She is the lowest of the low. I probably also need to note 
that this story touches on issues that are still real and painful for many in our cultural context. It touches on issues of gender relationships, of infertility, of marriage and singleness and death and divorce. It touches on the realities that though our world might look so different, are still messy and complicated for many of us. I think we also need to read Tamar's story in the picture of Genesis as a whole. We go right back to when we started with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and God has made a promise to these people that through this family line, he will bring blessing not just to them but to the whole world. So although God's name is not mentioned in the Tamar story, did you notice that? That's why I can say there's no heroes in this story. God is at work behind the scenes because this whole story of Genesis is about a God who has a plan and has made a promise and people who are trying to live that out, and let's be honest, stuffing it up every chance they get. God is at work seeking to bring about his promise of a family line through which he will bless the whole world. And so we need to look for the thread of the big picture of what God is doing. The question that hangs over the Genesis story in every dimension of it is how will this promise come about when Abraham has no son, when Isaac, his only son, has no wife, when Jacob, the younger brother, has deceived his older brother and stolen the blessing, when Judah now, who will be the light of the seed, has three sons who have no children. How is God's promise to create this family line through which blessing will come to all people possibly going to work out through this messed up dysfunctional family? Will what God has said possibly come true in the messiness of this reality? In the end, I don't think this story is actually about Judah or Tamar at all. The question is, is God faithful? Will what God has said God will do come to pass? Can God's word be trusted? Those are the questions that the story as a whole is wrestling with. In that context, as I said, I think we need to read this story of Tamar quite carefully. Um, And I'm going to challenge you and encourage you to read it again later, talk about it, maybe read some books about it if you're interested, because we're just going to scratch the surface. But we need to read it carefully, not project our own cultural assumptions onto it, as too often has been done with these kinds of stories. There isn't a hero, a good guy and a bad guy in this story. There's just a big fat mess. But I also think there's some interesting glimpses we get and clues in the story that it is unexpected and that it isn't what we might first think. As I said before, I, the, the, the veiling thing is really interesting because the text is actually very careful to say that Tamar puts on a veil so that he won't recognise her and that Judah thinks she is a prostitute. Every commentary that I've read that was written more than 10 years ago says Tamar is a prostitute, a seductress, a temptress. We've projected onto our reading of this our own assumptions without understanding what's really going on. And I was nervous, to be honest. I went back and I read the text. I read it in the Hebrew and I was really nervous because what if it actually says that? What if this is actually a text that is even in its tiniest glimpses anti-women, anti-foreigner, anti-me. But it's not. 
I'm always amazed when we read the text carefully, these glimpses we get of a God who is pushing people out of their cultural frameworks, out of their assumptions, out of the oppression and darkness that might be what they are used to living in. The other interesting glimpse we get in the story is that Judah makes the assumption that everyone of his day would have made, that it is her fault that there has been no children. Essentially that she is cursed. He's not going to give her to his third son because he's lost two sons because of her. She is the reason his children have died. But we know, we have actually been told flat out, straight up by the writer of the Bible, it's not her fault at all. Those two men that died, they were wicked. They were evil and God actually put them to death. That's a whole other theological question this story raises of how God is interacting here. But she is presented to us as innocent in this story. She is actually presented as the only one who is trying to do the right thing. The other interesting glimpse we get in this story is after, um, after she and Judah have slept together and she becomes pregnant and Judah finds out and he immediately wants her put to death. Now, kind of has a right to say that. He is technically still her father-in-law, so she comes under his protection. And the law says that the punishment for adultery is death. He has a small problem. The law says that both parties to adultery should be punished by death. He doesn't even ask the question of who else was involved, let alone realise that it is him. His hypocrisy is actually quite breathtaking. And again, for a text that is written in such an ancient patriarchal culture, to shame him in this way and to make him look like such a fool is quite remarkable. It's quite unusual. It gives me some sense of hope that God is at work behind the scenes. So it seems to me that in the story, there is no hero, there is no good guy. But Tamar, the victim, the outsider, the woman, the low-status person, is actually the only one presented as having any kind of intention to do the right thing. It seems that she knows that the only way she can continue to survive in this culture is to have a child from the family that she belongs to. And if she is not being given the son, that is her only way of having that come about, then this is her next best option. It seems to be a bad option, but it's her next best or perhaps her only option. And it seems to me that Tamar is in some way claiming some sense of protection, the status that she has been denied and then that in that culture she deserves because nobody else is going to give it to her. So what do we do with this story where God is not mentioned, where the outsider, the woman, the low-status person is the only one trying to do the right thing, and yet all the options are bad. As I said at the beginning, we can't say be like this person and don't be like this person. We need to think much broader. About the clearest perspective we get on the whole story is Judah's statement at the end where he says, she is more righteous than I. Her righteousness shows up his lack thereof. And there are echoes, I think, of this kind of story in a number of stories throughout the Bible of women in particular of outsider women most of the time, who somehow, by the glimpses of their voices we get to hear, show us that this is not a book about heroes, that this is a book about people who fail, who make mistakes, who are constrained by the context in which they live, 
that teaches them things that are not good and are not right, that causes oppression and exploitation for others around them. And yet there is a God who is at work behind the scenes, calling them forward. And as I read this story, I couldn't help think of two stories in the New Testament. I don't know if you had heard any of the echoes, but of a woman who finds herself at a well on one hot day, a woman who's been married five times, is that right? And the man she's currently with is not her husband. A woman throughout the history of interpretation of the Bible has been called a harlot and a slut, but actually probably had had the same thing happen to her, husband after husband die on her, because she had no right to divorce. She had no right to make those choices. And a saviour who comes and meets her and reveals who he is to her and who gives her the role of proclaiming the truth of who he is to her whole community. Something that Tamar could only long for and hope for. A tiny glimpse pointing forward to a much more incredible story when Jesus enters into the picture. Or how about the woman in John chapter 8, caught in adultery, again dragged before the men of her town to be punished by stoning. Where's the guy there who deserves the exact same punishment? Again, the culture, the framework, the hypocrisy, the echoes, and a Jesus who steps in and reaches his hand out to her and says, let no one condemn you. In the end, Tamar is blessed by God. How can I say that? She gives birth to these twins, and one of her twins becomes the father of the line of the promise of the blessing. It is not Joseph, whose story we're going to look at next week, who actually gets 23 chapters of Genesis, who is the inheritor of the promises and the blessing of God and becomes the ancestor of the Messiah. And I would say it's not even Judah, the eldest son, because after she gives birth to him, we read, he has nothing to do with them ever again. It is Tamar's children through which the promises of God flow on generation through generation to the kings of Israel, to David, the man after God's own heart, to the Messiah, to Jesus. God is able to bring his blessing to the least likely person in this story, in the messiest of human frailty in all its forms. So what does this story have to say to us? How do we wrestle with it? Well, the title we gave this message was Called in the Messiness. And I hope that you don't feel like you're sitting in a situation akin to Tamar's this morning. But in terms of weakness, messiness, frailty, constraints of our culture, constraints of our families, then maybe we are. In the midst of a messiness that might be outside of our control, for some of us, family situations and dysfunction that have shaped who we are, for some of us, hurt that has been perpetrated upon us, abuse that has been done to us. For others of us, it might be messiness that we have contributed to, relationships that have broken down, where there's been no hero and no bad guy, but just mess, mistakes that we have made. For some of us, it might just be the world that we live in that is complicated and has cultural challenges and difficult dynamics and we don't quite feel like we've yet reached the place, much as we would like to say it, where all genders and all ethnicities and all ages are treated equally. 
There is a God who, as it were, is at work even in the midst of that mess. And how can I say that with such confidence? Because if he could be at work in the mess that was Tamar's life, he can be at work in the mess that is our lives, that is your life. Tamar was called to participate in the purposes of God that went so far beyond what she could ever have dreamed or imagined. Can you imagine telling Tamar on that day that her name would be written in the pages of the New Testament as one of the mothers of the Messiah through whom God would reconcile all things to himself? That this is how her story would go. She was called by a God who was bringing about something so much more than what she could see, who was working towards a day when all would be set free and all would be set right. What does it mean that you have that same God in your mess, in your context, in your reality? A God who, no matter who you are and where you've come from, calls you to participate in his plan. And a God who, in Jesus, doesn't just call you in the mess, but has stepped into the mess with you and wants to call us out of it to a new hope and a new day. Let me pray. Lord, we read a chapter like this and I don't know where to go. There's so many questions, complications and messiness. And yet somehow you are speaking through a text that was written so long ago to people so different from us. And yet you are the same. Lord, I pray that as we have wrestled, as I've thrown around some thoughts this morning, uh, that you would help us to hear your voice in the midst of all that. That you would be speaking into each one of our own situations and lives and into us as a community. And in particular, Lord, I pray for those sitting amongst us this morning when we are feeling the mess, whether in our own lives, in our families, in our community, in our nation, in our world. Help us to hear your call in the messiness and to meet you, Jesus, as you walk and enter into that and to follow you as you lead us and call us out of it. And I ask this in your name. Amen.